Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Zdrasvutia and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 27, Ivan the Great. Thanks for listening in. So, where are we up to? Well, in the last episode, we covered the conquest of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks in 1453, the splintering of the Golden Horde into a number of smaller carnates, and the long, bitter Muscovite civil war fought between Vasily II his uncle Yuri, and his cousins Vasily the Cross-Eyed and Dmitri. And then we looked at how Muscovy became a more centralised state during the reigns of Vasily and his son Ivan III, saw how the collapse of Byzantium led to Moscow becoming the head of the Orthodox Church, and then finally witnessed Ivan's annexation of the Republic of Novgorod and the standoff at the Ugra River in 1480, which effectively ended the 240-year-long Mongol-Tatar yoke. This week, we'll be covering the remainder of Ivan's 43-year reign, mainly looking at the period between 1480 and 1505, and seeing how things developed in a Moscow free from its Mongol shackles and with things surprisingly quiet on its western borders. Or at least for the time being, they were. And then at the end of the episode, we'll spend a bit of time looking at whether or not Ivan, or Ivan, deserved his title, The Great. But before we get started on all of that, just a couple of bits of admin. And first of all, big thanks go out to Daniel Ahern, Fioki, Shlomo Schleckelstein, PBG7F9, RTYBV67, and Edward Dunderdale. And finally... Luke, I am your anxiety, and that's not a statement, that's the name of somebody's uh, logon, who have all followed the podcast. Thank you guys, it really is massively appreciated. And then secondly, and I do this every so often, if you want to follow the podcast or get in touch and ask a question or send in a comment 
then you can in a number of different ways. Via Twitter at HistoryRussia1 or via the Podbean phone app or on whichever app you listen in on, Google Podcasts or Player FM for example, where lots of other people have also followed. Then there's good old-fashioned email, nordicworld@outlook.com. Or, if you're really in the mood, you could always drop by Apple Podcasts and either leave me a comment there or a nice juicy five-star rating, either of which would really help to spread the word about the podcast. But if you don't want to do any of that and just quietly listen in peace, then that's fine by me. It's a free world. Well, most or some of it is, and divine freedom anyway. Unlike Moscow under Ivan III, which will become increasingly autocratic. And with that at the forefront of our thoughts, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. So we're going to make a start by looking at the events and policies that were related to home and domestic affairs. And then, later on in the episode, we'll cover Ivan's interactions on the foreign policy front. So bear with me, because there will be a bit of jumping around date-wise. Now, I mentioned in a previous episode some of the drawbacks related to the system of primogeniture, or the succession of the eldest child to the previous incumbent, usually father and son, not always, but usually, in the medieval world. Well, on the flip side, a hereditary monarchy tended to work well when you had stability over a long period of time, with competent rulers operating with a clear strategic approach. So by 1480, Ivan III had been in charge for 18 years, and he'd go on for another 25. Before that, Vasily the Blind had reigned for 37 years. Before that, Vasily I for 36 years. And before that, Dmitry Donskoy for 30 years. So you kind of get the picture. But it hadn't all been a bed of roses. Dmitri and Vasily the Blind had been minors when their rules had started. Plus there'd been a civil war and various scrapes with the Horde and Lithuania to deal with. But on the whole, each of the last four Grand Princes, well, the last three and the present one, had been more than up to the task of steering the ship of state through some fairly choppy waters, and each of them had roughly the same set of clear priorities. And those were Break free from the Mongols Expand Moscow's territory Increase trade revenues and centralise the power in the hands of the Grand Prince. And it's the last of those that have become something of a priority for Ivan, mainly because he recognised, like his father, who had found out the hard way during the Civil War, and Kiev, Vladimir and the Horde, which had all discovered at various points, that too many princes would eventually lead to instability and the loss of effective control. And so the appanage system had to be dealt with. So Ivan had three brothers. In 1472, his eldest brother Yuri had died childless, childless. And so it was a fairly simple decision for the Grand Prince, or so he thought, to appropriate his brother's entire estate. However, by doing this, he managed to upset the other two, Andre and Boris, who were angered even more when in 1480, Ivan refused to share a portion of the recently conquered Novgorodian lands with them. So later in the year, they rebelled, 
and it was only with some difficulty that the Grand Prince managed to keep them on side. But Ivan wasn't finished, because when later on in his reign, both remaining brothers died, he also eventually took their lands, thus depriving their sons of the appanages or lordships that they would have normally inherited, therefore putting more power, lands and authority into his own hands. And it wasn't just his immediate family who fell foul of the Grand Prince's increasingly autocratic style. The longer his reign went on, the less he consulted with the boyars in affairs of state, reducing them essentially to a bunch of yes-men who were purely dependent upon his say and his will. And all of this started to go to his head a bit. He was the first Russian ruler to style himself a Tsar, a Slavic derivation of the word Caesar, and the Grand Duke of all Rus, although it has to be said not as official titles. And with his second marriage to Sophia, the niece of Constantine XI, the last Byzantine emperor, he adopted the empire's double-headed eagle design as Moscow's formal coat of arms. Because in Ivan's mind, Moscow was the second Constantinople. Const the second Constantinople. I'm, I'm so glad I'm not going to have to say that word too many more times. Or the third Rome. And there was only room for one man to be in charge. Ivan also wanted the outside world to see this new Rome in all of its glory. But the trouble was, Moscow had grown up in a piecemeal fashion, with no real overall plan. And so he decided that the old place needed a bit of sprucing up. And so he got the decorators in, but not just any old bunch of decorators. The Grand Prince invited a number of Italian architects and builders to Moscow, including amongst others Ridolfo de Fioravante, who was nicknamed Aristotle because he apparently knew everything, Marco Ruffo and Pietro Antonio Salari, who along with some local Muscovite builders and tradesmen completely redesigned and rebuilt the entire Moscow Kremlin walls, which still exist today, and then for good measure added a new palace complex and a couple of cathedrals. And another thing that Ivan decided to spruce up or give a makeover to was Moscow's law code, which had last received a major overhaul back in the 11th century under Yaroslav the Wise. And so, in 1497, he issued a document called the Sudebnik, which roughly translates as the law code. Now, this Sudebnik contained 68 articles or points that were grouped together under several main themes, such as theft and the handling of thieves, written court decisions, the freeing of slaves, i.e. manumission, bailiffs, tradespeople, land enclosure, loans, travel fees and levies, and land litigation. So the good news is that I'm not going to go through all 68 of them, but I'll read out a few just so that you can get a general flavour of what the document contained. And that means, for the first one anyway, it's quotation voice time. Article 18. And if anyone presents a manumission without reporting to the boyar and without the secretary's signature, or in towns without reporting to the vice-regent, 
who is a boyar holding full jurisdictional grant, then such manumission is not valid, except when the master, with his own hand, shall write it, and then said manumission is valid. Okay, back to normal voice now. Article 61. And between villages and hamlets, fences are to be erected by halves, i.e. each side putting up half the fencing, and through whose fence there shall occur damage by cattle, he whose fence it is shall pay the damages. And when meadowlands are far from villages or hamlets, then the owner of such lands shall not erect a fence, but he whose lands are ploughed fields next to the meadow shall erect the entire enclosure. And then finally, Article 39, which is my personal favourite. And if evidence be brought against a person or theft of theft, or brigandage, or murder, or defamation, or any other such evil deed, and he is a known criminal, then he, the vice-regent or judge, shall order him put to death, and shall exact the sum at issue from his estate. And what is left over of his property the vice-regent and his deputy shall take for themselves. And, if the known criminal has no property with which to pay the summer issue, then, nevertheless, he, the vice-regent, shall not hand him over to the plaintiff to make up the plaintiff's loss, but shall order him put to death. Now, did Ivan come up with all or part of these new laws himself, or did he just command his boyars to rewrite the rules and sign off on them at the end? Probably the latter, as Ivan doesn't strike me as someone who would get that close to the detail, but maybe I'm doing him a disservice. And anyway, in the great scope of things, I don't suppose it really mattered. The laws were revised, and that was that. OK, there's just one more area to cover before we move over to foreign affairs, and that's to do with a spot of trouble within the Orthodox Church that occurred towards the back end of Ivan's reign, in, all of, in, in of all places, Novgorod where you would have thought that people were better off keeping their heads down. Anyway, a small group of the clergy in the city, referred to as the Judaizers, had started to question certain aspects of orthodox belief and tradition, such as monastic institutions, devotion to icons, and some aspects of Trinitarian doctrine. Ah, so what is Trinitarian doctrine, I hear you exclaim? Well, I'm not going to get into this too deeply, but briefly, Trinitarian doctrine is the belief that God exists as three persons, but is one being, having a single divine nature. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not names for different parts of God, but one name for God, because three persons exist in God as one entity. They cannot be separate from one another. So there you go. Anyway, eventually the Judaizers', Judaizers beliefs and teachings reached the ears of Ivan, and surprisingly he seemed to be in favour of their views, because he welcomed them to Moscow and then placed two of their number into senior positions as archpriests at the cathedrals of the Dormitian and Michael the Archangel in the Kremlin. And eventually an heretical metropolitan called Zosimas was installed to the See of Moscow. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The principal opponent of these heretic Judaizers was the abbot Joseph of Volokolamsk, who was a staunch proponent of traditional monasticism and over a period of time, he managed to persuade Ivan that the Judaizers were simply heretics and that the sanctity and authority of the Moscow-led Orthodox Church needed to be upheld. And so in the year 1504, under the auspices of the Grand Prince, a series of church councils were convened to try the Muscovite and Novgorodian heretics, and in what were effectively show trials, all were found guilty and publicly burnt at the stake. And so on that happy note, and with the appanage system sorted, the running of this state effectively in, ha in the hands of one man, the Grand Prince of course, the laws revised, a facelift for Moscow and the heretics burnt, will move into the field of foreign affairs. How would Ivan's foreign policy shape up for the remainder of his time in charge? Well, let's begin in the east, where Moscow was keen to make sure that there was to be no Mongol resurgence and that the separate Khanates remained just that, separate. And to maintain this state of affairs, in 1487, Ivan reduced the Khanate of Kazan, one of the many offshoots of the Horde, to the condition of a vassal state. He then decided to seek amicable relationships with two other Muslim powers. First of all, he sought closer ties with Khan Menli I Giray of the Crimean Khanate, and with those ties established, he then got the Khan to broker diplomatic relations between Moscow and the growing power in the south and the successor state to Constantinople, the Ottoman Empire, with Moscow opening its first embassy in 1495 in the Ottoman capital, Istanbul. And with Moscow's stock rising, a number of the Christian kingdoms in the Caucasus region started to see Ivan as someone who would protect their interests in a largely Muslim region. And further afield, Ivan entered into correspondence and diplomatic ties with Denmark and the Holy Roman Empire, mainly to win friends as things were getting a bit feisty on Moscow's northern borders with Sweden and the Livonian Order. In Novgorod, Moscow's control increased, with large numbers of the former republics, aristocracy and merchants being deported to the east and the closure of Novgorod's last independent Hanseatic League trading post. But all of this were 
well, they're all bits of a sideshow, really, because Ivan's main foreign policy objective in the second part of his reign, once he had protected his northern, eastern and southern borders, was to take advantage of the situation in Poland stroke Lithuania and start to break back the former Rus principalities that had been annexed and loosely governed by Lithuania. So let's spend a bit of time looking at what that situation was. The last time we looked at Polish stroke Lithuanian matters in any detail was around 100 years ago in 1386 when Lithuania and Poland got together in the form of a personal union with the Grand Duke of Lithuania, Jogaila, moving up a few rungs to become the King of Poland and with his cousin Vytautas replacing him as the new Grand Duke. Vytautas had died in 1430 and his son and then his grandson each inherited in turn the Grand Dukedom of Lithuania. And in Poland a similar thing happened. Jogaila died in 1434 and two of his sons, first Vladislav and then Casimir, became kings. And it's Casimir who we're interested in here because he inherited the Grand Dukedom of Lithuania in 1440, Vytautas' line having died out, and then became king of Poland in 1447 when his elder brother died, thus re-cementing the Polish-Lithuanian Union, which had become a bit flaky. Now, Casimir's list of achievements during his 45-year reign over both Lithuania and Poland were, were impressive. He brought Prussia under Polish rule, defeated the Teutonic Knights, managed to get the Polish and Lithuanian nobles working together, joined the Hungarians in their ongoing struggles with the Ottomans, massively improved trade and enhanced Poland's reputation and relationships with the Western European monarchies. There is a suggestion that Casimir had made an alliance with the Mongols and was meant to have been present at the Ugra River standoff. However, for whatever reason, he didn't turn up and likewise didn't offer any help when his other ally, Novgorod, really needed him back in 1478. And I reckon that the simple answer for these absences was that Casimir just wasn't that interested in what was going on with Moscow, the Mongols or Novgorod or basically anywhere that was to his east. As we've seen, his problems, hopes, fears, interests and ambitions all lay in other directions. Well, that was the situation in Poland-Lithuania, and you'll never guess what, it was all about to change. In 1486 and 1487, the territories along the ill-defined Lithuanian-Muscovite border came under attack from Ivan and his new ally, the Crimean, Khan of Ka the Crimean Khan. Casimir died in June 1492 and in the August Ivan went all in, capturing and burning the towns of Mtsensk, Lyubutsk, Serpesk and Meshchovsk. Lithuanian Orthodox nobles who saw which way the wind was blowing began switching sides to Moscow and by 1493 it was all over by the shouting. The new Grand Duke of Lithuania, Casimir's son Alexander, his elder brother, John I Albert, having become King of Poland, as the two countries decided to take a break from one another, again, sent a delegation to Moscow to negotiate an eternal peace treaty, uh, which was concluded on February the 5th, 1494, 
with Lithuania ceding extensive lands to Moscow. And in an additional effort to instill peace between the two countries, Alexander was betrothed to Helena, Ivan's daughter. The eternal peace lasted for six years. In 1500, Ivan III, sensing further gains, resumed the hostilities. And Alexander's response was hardly the stuff of heroes, as all he could think to do was garrison Smolensk and other strongholds and then employ his wife, Helena, to mediate another truce between him and his father. And this time, Lithuania had to surrender about a third of its territory to Moscow. In 1501, Alexander's brother, John I Albert died and the beleaguered Grand Duke was chosen as the next King of Poland. Meanwhile the war continued but there was a ray of hope in the form of the Livonian Order which was no fan of Ivan and which joined the hostilities on the side of their old enemy Lithuania. And this hastily assembled alliance proved to be successful in a couple of minor battles in 1501 and 1502 but these only delayed the inevitable and in 1503, a further truce was agreed, with Lithuania ceding even more land to Moscow and having to acknowledge Ivan as sovereign of all the Rus. Ivan died in October 1505, leaving Moscow and his new conquests to his son Vasily III, who, incidentally, hadn't always been in pole position to succeed his father, but got there in the end, and we'll cover that in more detail next time around. The Moscow of 1505, both the state and city that Ivan left to his son, was in a far stronger position than he himself had inherited back in 1462. For the first time in a long time, Muscovy was on the front foot and had established itself as the major player in the region. Its territory had been massively expanded with the reappropriation of a large chunk of the Rus lands that had been lost to Lithuania and its borders were secure. There were no enemies on the horizon. The Orthodox Church was independent, laws had been revised, the Kremlin complex had been beautified and the Apennine system had been dealt with. So all in all, a very impressive set of achievements, even though, as I mentioned earlier, he had, to a certain extent, built upon the strategy and the legacy left by his three immediate predecessors. But there was another side to Ivan, and various scholars and historians have characterised him as an autocratic tyrant who ruthlessly disinherited his brother's families, subjugated the boyars, imposed forced migrations upon much of Novgorod's population and who was happy to use his daughter Helena as a bargaining chip during the Lithuanian wars. And I'd agree with all of that, but to put it into perspective, were there any successful late medieval rulers anywhere who could be judged as thoroughly nice family men by today's standards? I can't think of any. And to wrap this up, I reckon that Ivan fully deserved his title the Great. He ticked all of the boxes and I reckon that he did the best that he possibly could for his country and himself and in doing so laid the foundations for the centralised Russian state. If only he could have done it with a bit more of a smile on his face. 
Okay, that's it. I've waffled on far too long this week. Next time, we'll be doing our second State of the Nation episode, looking at what kind of place Moscow was at the turn of the 16th century, analysing the impacts of the 240-year-long Mongol occupation and investigating its strengths and weaknesses from a geopolitical standpoint. And then to finish off, we'll cover the reign of Ivan's son, Vasily III. So, until then, stay safe, wrap up nice and warm, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.